Part 1, Chapter 9a of The Adventures of Jimmy Dale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. The Adventures of Jimmy Dale by Frank L. Packard. Part 1 The Man in the Case. Chapter 9a two crooks and a knave. Story begins. The bullet wound along the side of his head and just above his ear would have been a very awkward thing indeed, in more ways than one, for Jimmy Dale, the millionaire, to have explained at his club, in his social set, or even to his servants, and of this latter to Jason the solicitors in particular. But for Jimmy Dale as Larry the Bat, it was a matter of little moment. There was none to question Larry the Bat, save in a most casual and indifferent way, and a bandage of any description, primarily and above all, one that he could arrange himself, with only himself to take note of the incongruous hues of skin, where the stain, the grease paint, and the makeup was washed off would excite little attention in that world where daily affrays were commonplace happenings, and a wound, for whatever reason, had long since lost the tang of novelty. Why then should it arouse even a passing interest, if Larry the Bat, credited as the most confirmed of Dupfians, should have fallen down the dark, rickety stairs of the tenement? in one of his orgies, and in the expensive language of the Badlands, cracked his bean. And so Jimmy Dale had been forced to maintain the role of Larry the Bat for a far longer period than he had anticipated, when, ten days before, he had assumed it for the night's work that had so nearly resulted fatally for himself though it had placed Russell's murderers behind the bars. For the next day, unwilling to cut the risk of remaining in that neighborhood, he had left Hanson's, the farmer's house on Long Island, where the toxin had carried him in an unconscious state, telephoned Jason that he had been unexpectedly called out of town for a few days, and returned to the sanctuary in New York. And here, to his grim dismay, he had found the underworld in a state of furious, angry unrest, like a nest of hornets, stirred up, seeking to wreak vengeance on an unseen assailant. For years, as the Grey Seal, Jimmy Dale had lived with the slogan of the police, the Grey Seal, dead or alive, but the Grey Seal sounding in his ears, with the newspapers screaming their diatribes, arousing the people against him, nagging the authorities into sleepless, frenzied efforts to trap him, with a price upon his head that was large enough to make a man, not too pretentious, rich for life. But in the underworld, until then, the name of the Grey Seal had been one to conjure with, for the underworld had sworn by the unknown master criminal, 
and had spoken his name with a reverence that was none the less genuine, even if pungently tainted with unholiness. But now it was different. Up and down through the badlands, in gambling hells, in vicious resorts, in the hiding places where thugs and crooks burrowed themselves away from the daylight, through the heart and the outskirts of the underworld, traveled the fiat, whispered out of mouths, crooked to one side, vet to the grey seal. Gangland differences were forgotten in the larger issue of the common will. The gang spirit became the spirit of a united whole, and the crime fraternity buzzed and hummed poisonously, spurred on by hatred, thirst for revenge, fear, and perhaps most potent of all, a hideous suspicion now of each other. The underworld had received a shock at which it stood aghast, and which, with its terrifying possibilities, struck consternation into the soul of every individual of that brotherhood, whose bond was crime, who was already wanted for some offence or other, whether it ranged from murder in the first degree to some petty piece of snake thievery. Stangeist, the Indian chief, the lawyer whose cunning brain had stood as a rampart between the underworld and a prison cell, was himself now in the tombs with the certainty of the electric chair before him, and with him the same fate equally assured were Australian Ike, the Mope, and Claridine, aristocrats of the bandlads of the badlands, peers of that inglorious realm were those four, and the blow had fallen with stunning force, a blow that in itself would have been enough to have stirred the underworld to its depths. But that was not all. From the cells in the tombs, from the four came the word, and passed from mouth to mouth in that strange underground exchange, until all had heard it, that the grey seal had squealed. The grey seal who, though unknown, they had counted the most eminent among themselves, had squealed. Who was the grey seal? It was he had held the secrets of Standage's and his band. What else might he not know? Who else might not fall next? The grey seal had become a snitch, a menace, a source of danger that stalked among them like a ghastly spectre. Who was the grey seal? None knew. That to the great seal, running to earth, went the whisper from lip to lip, and with the whisper men stared uncertainly into each other's faces, fearful that the one to whom they spoke might even be the grey seal. Jimmy Dale's lips twisted queerly as he looked around him at the squalid appointments of the sanctuary. The police were bad enough, the papers were worse, but this was a still graver peril. With every denizen of the underworld below the deadline, suspicious of each other, their lives, the penitentiary or a prison sentence, the stakes against which each one played, the role of Larry the Bat, 
clever as was the makeup and disguise, was fraught now more than ever before with danger and peril. It seemed as though slowly the net was beginning at last to tighten around him. The murky yellow flame of the gas jet flickered suddenly, as though in acquiescence with the quick, impulsive shrug of Jimmy Dale's shoulders. And Jimmy Dale, bending to peer into the cracked mirror that was propped up on the broken-legged table, knotted his dress tie almost fastidiously. The hair, if just a trifle too long, covered the scar on his head now. The wound no longer required a bandage, and Larry the Bat, for the time being at least, had disappeared. Across the foot of the bed, neatly folded, lay his dress coat and overcoat, but little creased for all that they had lain in that hiding place under the flooring since the night. When hurrying from the club, he had placed them there to assume instead the tatters of Larry the Bat. It was Jimmy Dale, in his own person again, who stood there now, in Larry the Bat's disreputable den, an incongruous figure enough against the background of his miserable surroundings, in perfect fitting shoes and trousers, the broad expanse of spotless white shirt bosom, glistening even in the poverty-stricken flare from the single sputtering gas jet. Jimmy Dale took the watch from his pocket that had not been wound for many days, wound it mechanically, set it by guesswork. It was not far from eight o'clock, and replaced it in his pocket. Carefully then, one at a time, he examined his fingers, long, slim, sensitive, tapering fingers, magical masters of safes and locks and vaults of the most intricate and modern mechanism. No single trace of grime remained. They were, they were metamorphosed hands from the filthy paws of Larry the Bat. He nodded in satisfaction and picked up the mirror. For a final inspection of himself, that this time did not miss a single line in his face or neck. Again, Jimmy Dale nodded, as though he had vanished into thin air, as though he had never existed. Not a trace of Larry the Bat remained, except the heap of rags upon the floor, the battered slouch hat, the frayed trousers, the patched boots with their broken laces, the mismatched socks, the grimy flannel shirt, and the old coat that he had just discarded. The mirror was replaced on the table, and pushing the heap of clothes before him with his foot, Jimmy Dale knelt down in the corner of the room, where the oilcloth had been turned up, and the loose planking of the floor removed, and began to pack the articles away in the hole. Jimmy Dale rolled the trousers of Larry the Bat into a compact little bundle and stuffed them under the flooring. The gas jet seemed to blink again in a sort of confidential approval. 
as though the secret lay in violet between itself and Jimmy Dale. Through the closed window, shade tightly drawn, came low and muffled the sound of distant life from the Bowery, a few blocks away. The gas jet, suffering from air somewhere within the pipes, hissed angrily. The yellow flame died to a little blue, forked spots, and Jimmy Dale was on his feet, his face suddenly hard and white as marble. Someone was knocking at the door. For the fraction of a second, Jimmy Dale stood motionless. Found as Jimmy Dale in the den of Larry the Bat, and the consequences required no effort of the imagination to picture them. Police or denizen of the underworld who was knocking there, it was all the same. The method of death would be a little different, that was all. One legalized, the other not. Jimmy Dale, Larry the Bat, the Grey Seal, once uncovered, could expect as much quarter as would be given to a cornered rat. His eyes swept the room with a swift critical glance. Evidences of Larry the Bat, the clothes, were still about. Even if he, in the person of Jimmy Dale, alone, damning enough, were not standing there himself. And he was even weaponless. The toxin had taken the revolver from his pocket, together with those other telltale articles. The mask, the flashlight, the little blue steel tools, before she had entrusted him that night, wounded and unconscious, to Hanson's care. Jimmy Dale slipped his feet out of his low evening pumps, snatched up the old coat and hat from the pile, put them on, and without a sound, reached the gas jet and turned it off. A second had gone by, no more. The knocking still sounded insistently on the, on the door. It was dark now, perfectly black. He started across the room, his tread absolutely silent, as the trained muscles, relaxing, threw the body weight gradually upon one foot before the next step was taken. It was like a shadow, a little blacker in outline than the surrounding blackness stealing across the floor. Halfway to the door, he paused. The knocking had ceased. He listened intently. It was not repeated. Instead, his ear caught a guarded step retreating outside in the hall. Jimmy Dale drew a breath of relief. He went on again to the door, still listening. Was it a trap? That step outside. At the door now, tense, alert, he lowered his ear to the keyhole. There came the faintest creak from the stairs. Jimmy Dale's brows gathered. It was strange. The knocking had not lasted long. Whoever it was, was going away. But it required the utmost caution to descend those stairs. Rickety and tumbled down as they were, with no more sound than that. Why such caution? 
why not a more determined and prolonged effort at his door? The visitor had been easily satisfied that Larry the Bat was not within. Too easily satisfied. Jimmy Dale turned the key noiselessly in the lock. He opened the door cautiously. Half inch. An inch. There was no sound of footsteps now. Occasionally, a lodger moved about on the floor above. Occasionally, from somewhere in the tenement, came the murmur of voices as from behind closed door. That was all. All else was silence and darkness now. The door, on its well-oiled hinges, swung wide open. Jimmy Dale thrust out his head into the hall, and something fell upon the threshold with a little thud. But for a moment, Jimmy Dale did not move. Listening, trying to pierce the darkness, he was as still as the silence around him. Then he stooped and groped along the threshold. His hand closed upon what seemed like a small box wrapped in paper. He picked it up, closed and locked the door again, and retreated back across the room. It was strange, unpleasantly strange. A box propped stealthily against the door so that it would fall to the threshold when the door was opened. And why the stealth? What did it mean? Had the underworld, with its thousand eyes and ears, already succeeded in a few days, where the police had failed significantly for years? Had they sent him this, whatever it was, as some grim token that they had run Larry the Bat to earth? He shook his head. No. Ganglan struck more swiftly. With less finesse than that, the cat and mouse act was never one it favored, for the mouse had been known to get away. Jimmy Dale lighted the gas again and turned <coughs> the package over in his hands. It was, as he had surmised, a small cardboard box, and it was wrapped in plain paper and tied with a string. He untied the string and still suspicious, as a man is suspicious in the knowledge that he is stalked by peril at every turn, removed the wrapper a little gingerly. It was still without sign or marking upon it, just an ordinary cardboard box. He lifted off the cover, and with a short sudden laugh, stared, a little out of countenance at the contents. On the top lay a white unaddressed envelope. Has. Beneath, he emptied the box on the table, his black silk mask, his automatic revolver, the kit of fine, small, blued steel burglar tools, his pocket flashlight, and the thin metal insignia case. The toxin. Impulsively, Jimmy Dale turned toward the door and stopped. His shoulders lifted in a shrug that, meant to be philosophical, was far from philosophical. He could not, 
dared not venture far through the tenement, dressed as he was, and even if he could, there were three exits to the sanctuary, a fact that now, for the first time, was not wholly a source of unmixed satisfaction to him, and besides, she was gone. Jimmy Dale opened the letter, a grim smile playing on his lips. He had forgotten for the moment that the illusion he had cherished for years and the belief that she did not know Larry the Bat as an alias of Jimmy Dale was no more than an illusion. Well, it had been a piece of consummate egotism on his part, that was all. But after all, what did it matter? He had had his innings, tried in the role of Larry the Bat to solve her identity, devoted weeks on end to the attempt, and failed. Some day, perhaps, his turn would come. Some day, perhaps, she would no longer be able to elude him, unless the letter crackled suddenly in his fingers unless the house that they had built on such strange and perilous foundations crashed at some moment, without an instant's warning, in disaster and ruin to the ground. Who knew but that this letter now, another call to the grey seal to act, another peril invited, would be the last. There must be an end some day. Luck and nerve had their limitations. It had almost ended last week. Their philanthropic crook. It was the same inevitable beginning. You are well enough again, aren't you, Jimmy? I am sending these little things back to you, for you will need them tonight. Jimmy Dale read on, muttering snatches of the letter aloud. Michael Breen Prospecting in Alaska. Map of location of rich mining claim. Hamvert, his former partner, had previously fleeced him of $15,000, his share of a deal together. Breen was always a very poor man. Breen later struck a claim alone, but taken sick, came back home, died on arrival in New York after giving Mark to his wife. Wife in very needy circumstances. Lives with little daughter of seven in New Rochelle. Walks out by the day at Henry Mittel's house on the Sound nearby. Wife entrusted Mark for safekeeping and advice to Mittel. Hamvert after Mark. Telephone wires caught. Room 148. Corner. Right, first floor, Palais Metropole Hotel, unoccupied, connecting doors, quarter past nine tonight. The whistle, Mittel's house later, the police, look out for both the whistle and the police, Jimmy. There was more, several pages of it, explanations. Specific details down to a minute description of the locality and plan of the house on the sound. Jimmy Dale, too intent now to mutter, read on silently. 
At the end, he shuffled the sheets a little abstractedly as his face hardened. Then his fingers began to tear the letter into little shreds, tearing it over and over again, tearing the shreds into tiny particles. He had not been far wrong. From what the knight promised now, this might well be the last letter. Who knew? There would be need of all the wit and luck and nerve tonight that the Grey Seal had ever had before. With a jerk, Jimmy Dale roused himself from the momentary reverie into which he had fallen, and all action now stuffed the torn pieces of the letter into his trousers pocket to be disposed of later in the street, took off the old coat and slouch hat again, and resumed the disposal of Larry the Bat's effects under the flooring. This accomplished, he replaced the planking and oilcloth, stood up, put on his dress coat and light overcoat, and from the table stowed the black silk mask, the automatic, the little kit of tools, the flashlight and the tin metal case away in his pockets. Jimmy Dale raised his hand to the gas fixture, circled the room with a glance that missed no single detail. Then the light went out. The door closed behind him. Locked, a dark shadow crept silently down the stairs, out through the side door into the hallway. Along the alleyway, close to the wall of the tenement, where it was blackest, and satisfied that for the moment there were no passers-by, emerged on the street, walking leisurely toward the Bowery. Once well away from the sanctuary, however, Jimmy Dale quickened his steps, and twenty minutes later, having stopped but once to telephone to his home on Riverside Drive for his touring car, he was briskly mounting the steps of the St. James Club on Fifth Avenue. Another twenty minutes after that, and he had dismissed Benson, his chauffeur, and at the wheel of his big, powerful machine, was speeding uptown for the Palais Metropole Hotel. End of Part 1, Chapter 9A